Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebod, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop of our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Elizabeth Plater-Zybert. Elizabeth is the Malcolm Matheson Distinguished Professor of Architecture and the Director of the Masters of Urban Design Program at the University of Miami, where she also served as the Dean of the School from 1995 to 2013. She is an internationally recognized urban designer and a leader of the movement called the New Urbanism, which has promoted the design of walkable, resilient cities and towns since the 1980s. These ideas have been put to practice in the design of over 300 new town plans, most notably the design for Seaside in the Florida Panhandle. She's also a co-founder of the Congress for the New Urbanism, and her teaching, research, and professional practice has ranged from new community design, community rebuilding, regional plans, public and private buildings, and the development of zoning codes, which are really the legislative frameworks that guide the form of the city. She is the author of Suburban Nation, The Rise of Sprawl and the Decline of the American Dream, which has sold over 85,000 copies to date, and the new civic art, Elements of Town Planning. Her work with Andres Duani and DPZ Co-Design has received numerous awards and recognitions, including honorary degrees, Architectural Records' first Woman in Architecture Award, the Vincent J. Scully Prize from the National Building Museum, and the Richard Dryhouse Prize for Classical Architecture. Thank you so much, Liz, for taking some time from your very busy schedule to join us on On Cities today. Good morning, Carrie. Thank you for including me. You've had a, a, a wonderful list of participants. Thank you. So in preparing for our conversation today, Liz, I learned that your parents immigrated to the U.S. from communist Poland in the 1940s and that your father was an architect and your mother was an educator. In essence, your life has combined these two professions. Did you know that you wanted to be an architect from an early age? Uh, I did. Um, but seeing my father's work, um, uh, my mother... Um, as an educator, also had a second life as a uh, landscape designer. And so that um, environmental aspect of buildings and landscape was always a part of our life. Um, and um, I should say, because it's beginning to be part of the distant past, that the pencil drawings that were uh, on my father's desk um, uh in the manner that we used to do architectural drawings were probably my first um, um, attraction 
to this idea that one might one might be an architect. So the drawings the, were luscious. The beauty of the drawings. Yeah. And so did you enjoy drawing at a young age as well? I was drawing at a young age. All of us in the family were because it um, it was my mother's way of keeping us uh, engaged or um, occupied. That's a good way to do it <laughs> at a young age. Um, so actually, if you if we might be able to expand a little bit um, more on your early childhood experiences um, and the ways that perhaps they shaped your thoughts about cities and society, where where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a small town outside of Philadelphia uh, in Pennsylvania. The town was called Paoli, and we lived in a neighborhood that was um, very diverse. Um, being immigrants, um, the family resources were minimum. Uh, and we lived a life that I think uh, many who are concerned about sustainability and resilience these days would um, certainly promote. Um, we walked everywhere. Um, uh, we knew all of our neighbors. We helped each other out. We celebrated holidays together. Um, uh, the train station was nearby and uh, further destinations were reached by either train or bus, which we all learned how to use at a fairly young age um, and probably more independently than, than ch many children are allowed these days. Yeah, we hear more and more about that, in fact. And so it seems like when I listen to you describe it, that there's a combination of structure and freedom. It sounds like a pretty idyllic yeah, way to part, grow up. Part of the freedom was that since you knew the neighbors, everyone was on the lookout um, for your well-being as mm -hmm. a child in the streets. Mm -hmm. Since you're, It's interesting to hear you describe it because um, later on when we talk about your, your internationally recognized work, of course, um, certainly as an architect, but even more so as a urban designer, I think some of what you appreciated in those early years seems to surface in the work. Um, but we'll be getting into that in just a minute. Um, so you knew you wanted to be an architect um, from an early age, um, and you received your architecture and urban planning degree from Princeton, 1972, and your master's degree in architecture from the Yale School of Architecture um, soon after. What was it like to study architecture and urbanism during that period? Well, um, two things might be notable. Uh, one is that um, there were very few women studying in either of those fields. Um, I think as a child, when I imagined being an architect, it never occurred to me that there was a gender issue. Um, uh, but that was uh, in, didn't seem like any impediment. It just seemed odd, I think, when I was in school. Um, but the really important issue, I think, is that architecture and urban planning were a unified discipline at that time. Um, of course, over the years, in in close upon that following years, um, planning decanted from many architecture programs and went became more policy oriented, entered schools of government um, or public policy and um, uh, there emerged quite a split between the kind of large-scale thinking um, about um, cities and planning infrastructure 
um, economy on the one hand, and then building design on the other. Um, and I think when we started working um, in the space between as architects, urban design became an important uh, field or discipline because those two just had to come back together, mm -hmm. um, the individual building and the overall city. Uh, and they had become um, very different in terms of both study and practice. So I'd say that that unified approach, which we were lucky to have academically, followed us into practice. And would it be some of the um, ideas that were surfacing, let's say in the late 60s and certainly the early 70s with individuals like, let's say, Leon Creer or Aldo Rossi? Uh, would it be these books that you were reading in at Princeton or Yale um, no. that would start so, to influence you yeah, in this so, direction? Or So the ones you mentioned are a generation of uh, thinkers about cities who were emerging in Europe um, in the 70s and 80s. But importantly, um, in the U.S., people like Jane Jacobs um, with The Death and Life of American Cities, Oscar Newman with his book about defensible space, which interestingly enough was research paid for by HUD um, and is still useful housing, um, housing design material. Um, there is that generation of people thinking about the cities and the environment um, that we're still reading, you know, are still on the reading lists. Um, and the the European influence, which you mentioned, landing on top of that, um, I think became a very rich background from which to try to work on this scale between buildings and cities. Great. Um, I've, I guess we could talk a little bit more about these influences um, in the sense that I've come to understand that those who achieve success in their careers um, have generally had mentors to guide them. Um, who would you say have been some of your greatest mentors? You know, that's, a, um, that's an interesting question because I think everyone can point to those kinds of influences. And um, I would have to say that one of my greatest mentors um, and influencers is my partner and husband, Andres Duani, um, an incredible thinker, um, reader, um, enthusiast, um, creator, innovator. Um, uh, and that's a context that I've had um, been privileged to have um, all my adult life. So I would say he's primary. Um, there are, of course, others um, in the practice. And, and then there are the people who have been leading figures in academia. The college presidents that I have worked with over the years were um, incredibly supportive of um, not only me personally, um, as an educator, but what we were trying to do here in the School of Architecture, um, or in the case of um, going back to Princeton as a trustee, um, the president supporting my ideas about the campus. 
the campus growth or building on the campus. Um, and then there are, of course, um, civic leaders. Um, I think of people like um, Nathaniel Reed or um, uh, Harvey Reuven. Harvey Reuven, who recently passed away, um, uh, was a leading environmental light uh, in Miami-Dade County in our region. And he introduced me to um, the idea that climate change was something we needed to work on hmm. um, uh, over a decade ago. And so, you know, in in very many different ways, a number of people have had a very strong influence on my work. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. You know, you never know where that's going to come from. True. In hearing your response, though, I'm reminded of a, an anecdote or, that Warren Buffett writes about, actually. He states that the two most important choices in, him, in his life were taking a, a public speaking course at Dale Carnegie and marrying his wife. <laughs> and he argues that that's among one of the most important decisions that one can make. This is the person you spend so much time with. So when you have the ability, like in the yeah. case of you and Andres, to find a a partner who has the same level of dedication uh, and passion for for a similar work, then it builds momentum. Yeah. By the way, I always regretted that I never could take that public speaking course at Princeton that I had identified as a potential <laughs> part of my curriculum. So you came to Miami in the late 1970s, first co-founding the Miami firm of Arquitectonica with Andres Duani, Bernardo Ford Brescia, Lauren Despier, and Herman Romney. How would you describe Miami during that period? You know, to this may be unfair, but to us as young people arriving in town, I think we thought the city was asleep in suburbia. Um, there was really very little downtown or urban life, um, and the, the architectural action, so to speak, was occurring with growth. Um, along the edges of the city. So um, it was also the beginning of uh, um, uh, the Latin American immigration, um, which of course had begun with um, Cuban, um, uh, the Cuban people who came here in the sixties, but were still developing their economic um, foundation. But by the time we were here in the seventies and um, other um, Central and South American influences started to play a role in the, in investment in the city. The physical environment um, had new impetus with that kind of investment. And so uh, it was really given its um, background uh, or lack of growth for many uh, years, um, the city and the region were ripe for the ideas of architectonica, the kind of um, uh, buildings with um, expressive figures, um, uh, somehow expressing more than just the quantity of space in the building. Um, and um, also the beginnings of ideas about preservation, preserving um, the valuable old parts of the city or rethinking its dependence on the on the automobile um, and all of that was happening kind of at the same time so there was economic impetus to rethink uh, what was happening in the city and 
the ideas were just emerging at that time as well. So it was a good coincidence. Yeah, I mean, I feel looking back at that time, the work of Architectonica in a way became synonymous for the image that was projected uh, about Miami to the rest of the world, you know, making it on the, you know, kind of uh, beginning clips of Miami Vice. And um, and despite the international success of Architectonica, you decided to form DPZ with Andres and your work dramatically shifted from the design of, let's say, iconic singular buildings to the design of new towns, um, most notably Seaside in the Florida Panhandle. So what prompted this this shift? Um, You know, within that firm, we had clients who were interested in um, not just one building at a time, but the kind of... um, uh, subdivisions of housing or um, uh, in in terms of seaside. So the first the first thing was a subdivision in housing of housing in Boca Raton, which called Charleston Place, which um, in which we encountered suburbia and suburban zoning and um, began our critique of um, that kind of urban growth. And the second one, Seaside, was a client, Robert Davis, who um, um, imagined that small town life could be repeated or uh, regenerated in a new form for our time. So it really was the clients who were um, requesting, in a sense, um, a new approach to an arena that architects really were not that um largely involved with housing was not considered a um, a kind of architectural, um, wasn't a, a patron's work. It wasn't going to promote uh, innovative architecture, um, was a kind of general sense at that time. So would you say it was a, the confluence of clients that were asking for the development of ideas beyond what they were seeing, plus, I guess, and it also an inherent interest on your part to take it on? Well, it was a challenge to say, you know, and one of my first um, design studio assignments here at the University of Miami was that I decided that we should study the students and I should study um, suburban housing subdivisions, which was anathema in academia at that time. That was a really risky thing to do. Um, And um, we were, a friend helped us uh, brought us a book from the 1920s called The American Vitruvius Civic Art, which um, opened our eyes to this middle scale of uh, building aggregations of placemaking um, through multiple buildings, uh, even rep- the repetitive building of housing. And so um, that kind of a, a, a critical eye cast upon suburbia, trying to give it an intellectual uh, give urban growth a kind of intellectual impetus as well as just responding to market forces was a challenge um, that um, we took on really without understanding where that would go. But it, it seemed like a, a void we could step into. And 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 you definitely did that <laughs> um, with the seaside, I guess. Seaside would really be the you know, I think the referential project, I wonder if for our listeners that might not be familiar with Seaside, 
Would you be able to briefly describe um, that project? Seaside um, is located in the panhandle of Florida on the North Gulf Coast, um, which at that time in the late 70s and early 80s was largely undeveloped. Um, in fact, there were no zoning regulations in that county, so we could um, we didn't, uh, and at the time we didn't understand how fortunate that was, but we could do a lot of things with that project that we realized later um, would require um, enormous um, efforts in other places. But um, Seaside is a small resort town. It was uh, with Robert and Daryl Davis um, uh, always intended to be a traditional town. We were looking at places like Key West, um, further south, or Cape May in um, New Jersey, these charming uh, wood front porch picket fence um, traditional towns of American history. Um, and it grew very slowly. Uh, Robert had certain ideas about um, the financing of real estate, which were radical at the time as well, uh, and took on a tremendous amount of meaning um, for many people, for the, the architects who were involved, for the people who lived there, um, who, who were replicating on vacation when they were there with their families, the kind of life that I described earlier um, of children uh, using the public space freely. Um, uh, and at the same time, as Seaside was growing, there was a growing environmental movement in Florida, which was called wise growth or growth management that preceded smart growth, which is the kind of current term for um, environmentally responsible and sustainable growth, um, urban growth. And, and so the, there was an interest uh, in, in the circles of policy in Tallahassee in the state capital, for instance, or in other cities, and how to replicate this urban experience of the small town, either in existing places or in, um, in new places. And there was a, that kind of emerging understanding that the environmental health of the surrounding natural and that the natural environment and the urban environment were connected and didn't need to be thought of as adversaries in any way, um, but as a continuity, which later became a kind of tool of the new urbanism called the transect, in which you imagine um, that kind of continuity across environments. So see, and uh, because it was I think because of the cultural context at that time, the environmentalism that was budding, historic preservation movement, um, concerns about existing cities, um, sea Seaside generated a lot of publicity for itself and for its ideas. Uh, and in that way, it's had a huge impact. Um, also because people could go there and experience it um, and take those experiences home. 
Yeah, it's uh, when you speak about the environmental movement, I think the second half of this conversation, we're going to spend time delving into how your work has uh, reacted and um, confronted uh, the challenges of climate change. But before we go there, um, I, I wanted to m- make a note that um, in, in 2021, the urbanist Carlos Moreno, he introduced the idea of the 15-minute city concept to ensure that urban residences or residents can fulfill the essential functions of everyday life within a 15-minute walk or bike ride from their homes. And while this seems like a new concept for many, it would seem to me that this idea was codified by the new urbanism, which is a movement that you co-founded more than 30 years ago. Can you speak to this idea? Because Seaside would certainly um, epitomize this idea and maybe the importance of it today. I mean, can we say that really the origins of this idea are with you in the new urbanism? Um, I'm not sure that Carlos Moreno would say that, but (laughs) certainly um, uh, they're very strong um, uh, parallels or or actually similarities. It's really the same idea. I think there's an understanding that within that 15 minutes, you can gather really most of the destinations that any life could need. Um, almost in any traditional city like um, Paris or um, Boston, for instance. Um, but, uh, and of course, less so in the suburban growth of um, um, many countries, especially the US. Uh, but it's true. The new, the Congress for the New Urbanism, um, the new urbanists have been speaking since our beginnings about the five-minute pedestrian shed, um, the five-minute walk. The Leon Creer talked about the the um, uh, the quartier and how that was based on a certain dimension, a four hundred meter radius. Um, the quarter mile radius is our five minute walk. Um, uh, but this isn't entirely um, a contemporary idea. Of course, every um, city in history has been walkable, but it was first articulated uh, perhaps verbally text in text and graphics by Clarence Perry in the New York Regional Plan of 1929. And there's a diagram Um, loosely based on Forest Hills, which is a new town of the Coral Gables generation, um, the Garden Cities of America, which, by the way, um, has have been beautifully documented in uh, Bob Stern's book, Planned, Paradise Planned. Um, And that five minute walk, um, we when we discovered that diagram, which was many years out of school, those kinds of things were not being taught. Um, But of course, now they are. Uh, When we discovered that Clarence Perry diagram, um, we started to compare it to our own experiences and to the suburban um, um, conventions. And that was seminal in in devising um, the principles of the new urbanism, which of course are articulated in the charter of the new urbanism. So yes, the five minute walk and the 15 um, minute city are very much the same idea. As long as you're not thinking 15 15 minutes of driving and 15 minutes on a bicycle can take you 
much further than a walk. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, you know, it's not a bad walk to go to the train station or to school or to other destinations, which um, could greatly reduce the suburban vehicles per day number, which is now stands at apparently 11 a day. We take 11 vehicular trips a day um, if you live in suburbia. And so this idea that you might be in a place where you could walk to most of your destinations um, really is an important, um, important for our future. Yeah, and certainly for the quality of our lives. And I think becoming uh, more and more central, even perhaps after um, discussions about the city in a post-pandemic world, which I think we'll get into in just a minute. So we're going to take a quick break. But when we return, I will continue the conversation with my guest, Elizabeth Plater-Zyberg, and turn to the ways that her work is tackling the challenges of climate change and the future of coastal cities. Join us in just a few minutes. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. Prior to the break, I was speaking uh, with Elizabeth Plater Zyberg about the foundational years of her career and the shaping of um, her urban design theories. Liz, I thought that um, for the second half of our conversation, we could shift focus to more current topics and to some of your new initiatives. And I was hoping that you could um, maybe explain to our listeners how your work is adapting to the rising threat of climate change, particularly in coastal cities. I've heard you um, in several presentations explain your ideas of adaptation uh, versus mitigation as they relate to responding to climate change. Could you discuss this a little bit with us? 
um, yes, a, uh, it can seem to many people, uh, I think still climate change is a kind of confounding phenomenon. And um, uh, I think most people imagine what can my individual response to it be. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I was uh, fortunate to be asked early in our understanding of it here in South Florida to work with a civic committee um, and was able to develop a foundation for how to think about it. And I think it's one of these complex issues in which um, structuring your own thinking about it is important, uh, which is what I try to do in the climate adaptation course that I teach every spring. Um, and the most important thing is to understand this, that it's there's no solutions. The change is uh, something that is constant. It's been constant in the history of the globe and its climate. Um, it may be accelerating now. Um, uh, and so it's not about solutions, it's about responses. And the two responses are mitigation and adaptation. Um, mitigation is... Um, the response of can we reduce the impact, um, reduce emissions? Um, it's roughly parallel to ideas of sustainability. Um, so green building, um, uh, uh, buildings that emit less carbon through the process and through their life is an important aspect of that. And very important are the ideas of the new urbanism in which um, using being less dependent on um, vehicles and the energy that mobility takes um, is a very important uh, mitigation action. Um, adaptation, uh, and by the way, that's something that's universal as a response. We can do that all over the world. Adaptation is um, responding and adapting to those impacts, which may be different depending on where you are. Everybody um, or most of us will be dealing with um, increasing impacts of heat, um, but whether it's more extreme weather in terms of um, rain or flooding or sea level rise or drought, um, those extremes are highly regional and even very specifically local there's a term been coined hyperlocal um and so uh and that's roughly parallel to this idea of resilience that, uh, which is about bouncing back but it's about um being able to live with those impacts um the one universal aspect of adaptation um that may not be so geographically explicit in terms of response is about getting out of harm's way, is deciding to leave somewhere because it's just unbearable to live there anymore. And we've been doing that. Every, every response um, to, in both terms of mitigation and adaptation are things that we know how to do. You know, so we don't have to be, um, we don't have to worry about the fact that it's so new that we can't deal with it. And the responses can be both technological and behavioral. Um, and so you can see I'm beginning to kind of structure a diagram, mitigation, adaptation, technology, behavior. Um, 
And so understanding where you are within that kind of broader picture um, can be, is probably the most useful way of thinking about it. I tell my students, um, you can decide whether your career, whether your trajectory is going to be taking this on um, and confronting it in some way that you want to deal with. Do you want to stay in South Florida and um, contend with um, the responses that we need to make to increased flooding, for instance? Or do you want to go to um, Charlotte, North Carolina, or some other city that may have uh, fewer impacts where you can direct your attention to other issues in design? Liz, when in hearing you um, respond, you you speak about technical, uh, let's say solution, well, maybe not solution, technical responses, responses. <laughs> and behavioral responses. Um, and oftentimes I find when we talk about climate change, it can feel very overwhelming. So I was wondering in all of your thinking about this, do you, if you had to point to one very promising technological response, like if you could say there's one that, you know, is promising what would you hang on to? And then conversely, if you could recommend to listeners, you know, what's a maybe an impactful behavioral response that we could have? Um, if you had to choose one in each of those arenas, and I don't mean to put you on the hot seat, but yeah. what what would you say? Well, um, uh, let me give the examples first. The tech response and uh, for m- mitigation and reducing emissions that's being promoted very strongly now is... Um, the electrification of everything. So the the electrical vehicle um, is a way of reducing emissions. I mean, the emissions are happening at the power plant, but it's a more controlled environment than every single automobile. The behavioral response would be, I'm going to live somewhere where I don't need to drive everywhere. Um, It's not unlike, um, you know, turning up the heat because you have a heater versus putting on a sweater. <laughs> um, and we can point to um, pre-technological history, you know, before pre-20th century history when um, behavior was probably the main response to whatever impacts or whatever climate or other contexts people had to respond to. Mm-hmm. Um, that's on the mitigation side. On the adaptation side, um, just using uh, South Florida as an example, um, you know, you you will either uh, put some structures in place or raise the ground to get out of the flooding, the increased flooding that's happening, uh, or you will learn to live with it. You'll put the house on stilts and let the water come through whenever it has to, um, or you will decide at some point to leave. Um, and, you know, that's not all of South Florida. We're talking about this becomes very sp- specific in terms of location. And that is the sequence of adaptive response is first you try to make some physical adaptations to it. The technological comes first usually. And then um, the behavioral one might be, I got to go. <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned these uh, kind of four, you talk about fortifying and defending, and then accommodating, and then retreating, 
and then cleaning up after retreat. And maybe this could segue into um, my next question, which is that in in a recent panel discussion, I also heard you describe the investment in life in coastal cities, which of course piqued my attention since I'm living in Miami like you are, um, like like the depreciation of an automobile in a way thinking about life in cities uh, or maybe coastal cities that are threatened. Um, what did you mean by this? Um, well, you know, one of the, um, lots of questions come up in these cor- in this course that I teach, um, uh, not only from the students, but some of our guest speakers and my own evolving thinking. And, um, you know, one of the things that we're not, used to we know how to leave places that stay you know migration worldwide um, is a long-term phenomenon Um, but the places they're leaving usually stay and we have places that may be disappearing or becoming uninhabitable Um, not in huge quantity but with enough people living in them on them that over time um, uh, it's a large economic or financial impact. Um, so we're used to the in the U.S. and I'm I know that other in other countries as well. I've heard from some of my French students about French coastal retreat. Um, governments get involved in um, paying people for their property to leave it, uh, so it can be returned to natural to the natural systems um, or to to new flooding. And that strikes me as something that we need to need some scenarios because we can't pay when, if something like 20% of the population in our country lives within 10 miles of the coast, the numbers of people that would have to be bought out at some point over history is huge. And yes, there's a long time trajectory for that to occur, but I think it would be interesting to do some scenario studies so we understand the scope of the problem. I think um, in many ways, there's still a great deal of fear of confronting the kind of physical reality. And um, maybe not so much the physical reality, the designers and landscape architects are already talking about the um, the coastal park that there's a name for it, you know, that the whole coast should be a park and public land uh, where people are not at risk. But the economic picture, uh, you know, the financial picture is one that's more complex uh, and really could use some study. Yes. So try to, I guess, try to make wise decisions today, both individually and at the scale of the community. And also in, enjoy it the way one would enjoy an automobile. Yeah, uh, you know, take care of it. There's, <laughs> and then there's time. There's time to work on things. Um, but then there there might have to become moments where where retreat is maybe the only option, and that is a difficult um, challenge for many of us to wrap our heads around because it's home, right? And home has both psychological as well as physical attachment. Yeah. But uh, but history has shown us that in certain instances that's inevitable. So, and, and, you know, we have, as I've said before, um, we have had experience with all the possible responses and this one of retreat, we can look at the American Rust Belt as 
a learning experience um, in which um, those cities, our industrial cities in the U.S. decanted because the jobs decanted and the people who could left uh, and other people were left behind who could not leave. And so uh, there are a lot of lessons to be learned of the things we'd like to avoid by planning ahead, what some people call managed retreat, hmm. um, which are in our, um, you know, not so distant history in American urbanism. Um, and so um, I think uh, we can use that history to uh, project future scenarios. You can't project, you can't predict exactly what's going to happen, but you can project possible paths. And dramatic movements are occurring right now. Um, you could say many migrations in the sense that much of our conversation about urbanism today uh, perhaps pertains or, or, or even beyond urbanism pertain to equity um, and, and really are at the forefront of worldwide discussions. And when we talk about climate change, the topic of climate gentrification is inevitable um, and it's occurring uh, today. Liz, what is climate gentrification um, as you see it? And what can the designers of the built environment do to maybe promote greater equity amidst rising environmental threats? Well, you know, I think until recently, um, the generally, the conventional um, perspective on where um the less resourced were living in our urban areas was that they were living in the less desirable land. Um, the wrong side of the tracks, the low land, um, uh, you know, close to the factories. Um, but uh, recently, I think we've begun to understand that in some cases, um, um, the under-resourced are living in places that may be more desirable as climate concerns emerge. So here in South Florida, um, the um, black neighborhoods are, the historically black neighborhoods are on the high ground um, relatively. They were on the wrong side of the tracks, but they weren't thinking about this back then. Um, and so as um, our real estate um, picture it gets ever more extreme we're talking about climate gentrification um, that those properties like in little haiti um, for instance are ever more valuable and ever more corporations are buying up single family houses for future aggregation and redevelopment um, the kind of um gentrification that many cities actually look forward to because it means additional revenue and because um, uh, that's a kind of growth that's needed. It's complicated in South Florida because it's not just about climate. It just, it's not just about moving up to the higher ground, but there's an enormous influx um, of uh, businesses and people due to national tax policy, which maybe we don't need to get into here, that's bringing people here for other reasons. Uh, uh, ironically, in, con in contradiction to our climate future, um, we're receiving huge 
amounts of population. So in our part of the world, it's, it's very, um, it's complicated. I think most climate migration is people um, leaving places that may be less inhabitable, the Central American farm country that's suffering drought, um, you know, or similarly in other um, other continents. So it is part of the discussion about equity, um, uh, but it's not simply, very often it's not simply a climate issue. Um, and it depends where you are, you know, in, um, I think probably it's different in areas of drought, uh, you know, and it, it has a lot to do with the capital that can be mustered to, um, to make a place to make it more habitable. Yeah, when when uh, you know examining your own work, of course, as an architect and an urban designer, our final output is the design of the physical world. But your firm has also tackled, you know, the sort of legislative frameworks for the design of cities, and as it relates to questions of, let's say, even climate gentrification maybe greater impacts may be able to be made outside of the physical design of a building, but rather in the design of policy, uh, legislative infrastructures like zoning codes, which you were, you've were you been fundamental in changing in Miami. And of course, the development of your form-based code now informs many zoning codes across the country. So do you think it's in these arenas that there is the potential for um the the construction of greater equity in these invisible frameworks um yes and i think that's probably more so than in the visible physical uh, building design um which occurs after those frameworks and which is important but um it's yeah, critical dependent, dependent on those yeah. frameworks and yes i'd love to talk about zoning that's one of them but i think um the current housing um conundrum which deals with um, uh, diversity of resources or um, inequity of resources has a lot to do with um, uh, other aspects um, and requires a commitment to um, providing um, habitation for the people who cannot participate in the market provision of it. And uh, right now in South Florida, um, it's absolutely crazy. Most people with a decent job, but you know, making a, sal a regular salary cannot afford housing or it's it's a large part of their, too, too large a part of their income goes to that. And, um, and so there are all sorts of policy issues involved in that. Um, but first and foremost, a commitment to the idea that that's part of what co a community or a government does. Um, and it may have to be beyond the market forces to um, produce the programs that can enable that. It's not just a supply and demand mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and I, issue. Yeah, and in no way do I want to undermine, undermine the power of design. 
in changing the physical environment. Because to your point earlier, when you designed Seaside, you had to design it so that people could believe it was possible and also be immersed in an experience that was very different from their own. And that is powerful. Uh, but you were able to do that because there were no zoning codes um, that that per- permitted you or, or restricted you from doing that. So I just wanted to point out to maybe designers out there, architects, students that, you know, of course, continue to design, you know, with with great conviction, but realize that you can also uh, become involved in the kinds of discussions that are sometimes outside of design, but that oftentimes can generate the final outcome. So, yeah. And uh, for instance, when we worked on on the Miami zoning code, one of the um, um, new things that was brought into the code was this idea that um, you might get additional capacity, zoning capacity or building capacity um, in exchange for providing affordable housing, what we call benefits, um, in which is specific additional um, piece of building, amount of building uh, could be generated with that, yeah. with that specific specificity in mind. Yeah, policy reflects our values. So what we value and what we want, we need to get it into the policies that allow us to build better worlds. So, and thank you for all the efforts you've done on that front. Liz, we're coming to the last, um, you know, two, three minutes. So I'm going to ask you the question I've been asking all my guests, which is what is your favorite city and why? Um, Do you know, um, I don't have a favorite city, but every city that I know has um, a favorite place in it. Um, some place that either shows some kind of intention um, for quality of life, quality of building, um, for beauty, which we haven't mentioned once during this conversation, but which I think is a very important um, aspect of quality of life for people in cities. And um, we can find those places in most of our cities and we can make them um, or remake them. Um, And that certainly is an important role for the architect and the urban designer is to imagine how placemaking, conscious placemaking and trying to give people beauty in their everyday lives um, can have a beneficial effect. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Liz, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for all the work that you do to try to design a better world um, and for the students that you inspire and the practice that you have led for nearly four decades. Um, I'm delighted to have been able to spend a few minutes with you today. Um, And for our next show, I would like to um, announce that I will be speaking with Olivia Ramos, who's an entrepreneur, architect, and founder and CEO of Deep Blocks, an artificial intelligence company that uses data to optimize building and real estate development. Please don't miss this conversation. And if you you enjoyed what you heard, follow us on Spotify, Apple iTunes, or um, on the On Cities podcast. See you next week. And may I say, Carrie, thank you for your work in making these podcasts. Thank you for including me. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 